Micah 4, 1 through 8, give your attention to the reading of God's perfect word. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, Hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. From worst to first. For some of us, those words bring back memories of 1991. The year before, the Atlanta Braves finished 65 and 97, worst in the National League. They were last in 1989 as well, and in 1988 when they lost 106 games among the worst seasons of all time. They were the worst. In 1991, their fortunes reversed. The Braves won 94 games. They won the National League, besting the Pittsburgh Pirates for the championship. In the best-pitched World Series of all time, Nine of the 14 games decided by one run. They lost game seven to the Minnesota Twins, who, incidentally, had also gone from worst to first. Little known fact for Atlanta fans. What a reversal. Micah 4 brings that kind of reversal to a more significant arena. Looking into Israel's short-term future, Micah prophesied judgment against Israel's sin and unrepentance. God promised covenant blessings for faithfulness, but despite religious words, Israel's leaders lived faithless lives. Her elites coveted their neighbor's land and laid awake at night scheming how to get it for themselves. Israel's sages were complicit in these crimes, perverting justice for their friends. And the prophets and priests were paid to baptize this immorality and say peace to the guilty while making war with the helpless. A challenge of the Old Testament for some people is how a loving God can ordain so much war, destruction, and death. The remedy for this confusion is to understand the cause. It is not evil for God to punish evil nor unloving for justice to prevail. 
The pagan nations who suffered God's wrath were guilty of great evil, idolatry that included human sacrifice, and human trafficking that included cult prostitution. And here in Micah, we see that God's righteous judgment extends even to the sins of his own people. There are privileges that come with belonging to God. But those privileges are about access to his word, access to the means of grace. They are not impunity against sin and unbelief and unrepentance. When God's people live like unbelievers, they are unbelievers. And God will eventually judge them for their sin. The first three chapters of Micah were a harsh reminder of the rightness of God's judgments, even against his own people, because of sin. The powerful elites considered themselves too wise, too rich, too important to be in need of God. And since they rejected his mercy, they received his wrath. But here in chapter 4, we seem to have gone quickly from worst to first, or at least from judgment to glory. These next prophetic oracles focus on grace and restoration, an important reminder that human sin cannot derail the plans of God. His perfect justice will be satisfied, and his perfect grace will also triumph. It's a struggle for many to understand why God allowed sin to enter the world in the first place. And we can't know all the reasons. But I do think it's safe to observe that sin provides a canvas upon which God paints a picture of his remarkable grace. It's hard to imagine really understanding God's love without first experiencing his mercy and forgiveness. Likewise, these oracles are not just about glory, but a particular kind of glory, restoration. Braves fans would go on to take division championships for granted. A decade of no big deal. Why don't you win a World Series? But that first one, for those of you who can remember back, because of the terrible years before, showed how it felt to be first. Israel will be brought low by her sin and God's judgment, very, very low. And from that position of wounding, the healing and restoration seems all the more glorious. In verse 6, God says he will assemble the lame. This is a likely allusion to Jacob's story of wrestling with God and coming away with a limp. That's the only place in the Bible this word is used personally. One writer says the result of that wrestling match was a different Jacob, someone who was teachable, humble, able to be used by God. And likewise, Israel would limp for the rest of their lives, but they would lean on the Lord and walk in his name. Yet the first verse, the first five verses of this passage make clear that this future glory is not just for Israel, it's for the faithful from every tribe and nation. You have three oracles here, and of the first two, the same themes are woven throughout. Verses 1 through 5, which is about the nations, and verses 6 and 7, which are about Israel's faithful remnant. And then the centerpiece of the whole thing is verse 8. All three of these visions have a temple on Mount Zion. 
Now remember from the last chapter, under God's judgment, Israel's temple will be brought to ruin. But here, Micah speaks of latter days. And in the latter days, he sees another temple, a temple to which all of God's people in and outside of Israel will be drawn in worship. A temple was a really important symbol in the ancient world, not just for Israel. Many aspects of that symbolism are relevant here. Temples represent God's presence with his people, as this temple would. Carefully and elaborately constructed, temples also symbolize that God's victory over chaos and also that God's rule over all the visible territory of the temple. And also, as a divine building on earth, they represent a kind of portal between the earthly and the heavenly realms. There's a lot of symbolism tied up in temples. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Micah's vision begins with the revelation that at some future time, beyond Israel's destruction, Yahweh will establish a temple so magnificent that it will be visible across the entire earth. So magnificent that people from all nations will be drawn to it in faith. Now verses 2 through 5 describe that event through the experience of the Gentile nations. That's us, by the way. The language here in Hebrew is quite poetic. It uses words that actually make rushing water sounds. It sounds like water flowing when you hear this read in Hebrew to to paint a picture of a river flowing supernaturally uphill toward the temple. This mass of people flowing uphill to the presence of God. Micah envisions people from all over the world coming to Yahweh in faith. And they're encouraging one another the way Israel does with the Psalms to gather to the house of the Lord, to learn from his holy ways and to live in the light of his salvation. Gentiles encouraging one another to come before the Lord God in worship. How could it be? Children, you know what eavesdropping is. It's trying to listen in on a conversation between other people. It's often wrong to eavesdrop, but not always. Verses 2 through 5 are actually eavesdropping. Micah is allowing us to eavesdrop on the conversation that these Gentiles are having as they move toward the temple of God. It's like there's a giant crowd of people that you see over there somewhere in town, and they're all moving in the same direction, and you naturally wonder, where are they going? What are they doing? And Micah lets us listen in for where they're going and what they're doing. And what is it? It's the opportunity to be taught God's ways so that they can go back out and live God's ways. They're so astonished by the greatness of God that all they want is to hear from him and to learn his ways. They are convinced by faith that if they apply his word to their lives, they will live in peace and prosperity. Daphne and I one time were at Uh, a family event here in Atlanta 
for some of her cousins. And it's a big room of people. And you see it start small at first where there's kind of a murmur and then some people move out of the room and then other people kind of, and then murmur. And suddenly you see this crowd talking and, and murmuring and move. And you go eavesdrop to hear what it is. And it's that there was a celebrity in the building. And people just wanted to see the celebrity who's sitting in the restaurant trying to have a quiet dinner with his mom, actually. And all these people are so driven by the celebrity that they just want to see it. This is that on an infinite scale. But the celebrity is the greatness of God and the wisdom of his teaching. And people are drawn to it like a river. Swords and spears... Turn them into farming tools. We'll have no need for weapons of war if we live out the ways of God. Verse 4 is one of my favorite in the Bible. Every man under his vine and fig tree. It's a picture of people who have put off all covetousness. And they live completely content with what they have. Which makes everyone else safe. They are satisfied, they are secure, they are at peace because everyone lives according to God's word. And it's assured, verse 4, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In that day, all will be as it ought. And Israel's faithful remnant will be present and blessed on that day as well. That's the second oracle of verses 6 and 7. The nations ignore God at the time of Micah, but this passage says they'll later come to him in faith. Israel's remnant is in a different situation. They live in tension of knowing God's promises while living every day in a world where those promises are not yet fulfilled. The remnant were currently oppressed in their own society. Their homes are being taken by Israel's elite. The remnant are about to see their nation lose battles and be conquered and be taken off into exile. They're not going to see peace and prosperity anytime soon. But they will hear these promises. And because these promises are from God, they will yet hope and trust in him. This remnant of Israel, by faith, will be in God's glorious kingdom. The themes of these two oracles are quite intentionally the same. It's only the perspective that switches. And so in verse 6, we get the same events, not from the perspective of the nation, but from the perspective of the remnant. Now, I already mentioned the allusion to Jacob's laming in verse 6. Micah also says that God will gather those who've been driven away and those whom I have afflicted from worse to first. Micah 3 is not forgotten. God will bring Israel into judgment. He will send them into exile. He will put his wrath upon them and discipline them. And then sometime in the latter day, he will gather those that he scattered in judgment. Now, Israel experiences not a change in fortune, lowercase f. Israel experiences the purposeful redemption of providence with a capital P, that God, who himself lamed and scattered them, will in that day make them a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This is a reversal of Israel's disobedient history, isn't it? Israel had previously refused to accept God alone as their king, demanding a human king, and that ended poorly. 
And in this new Jerusalem, in the latter days, that city will have God himself for its king. Now, verse 8 tells the same story, the story of restoration, same as the first two oracles, but now from the perspective of Zion, the holy city itself. The remnant and the nations will gather to Zion and she will be their watchtower like a shepherd standing on a tall tower keeping his flock protected from attackers and thieves so the very city of God will watch over his people. And Micah calls her daughter Zion. Experts in this field agree that this is meant to convey stability. The building up of society with the nurturing the community at its very heart and center. There's an allusion in verse 8 as well. In the phrase, the former dominion shall come. This will be unpacked more in chapter 5, but Micah is referring to the former dominion, the line of David, the kingship of David. And so he's saying that at this future time of glory, even though God will be Israel's only king, there will somehow also be a king from the line of David on the throne. I wonder how God will work that out. This text makes great promises to God's people. But this text raises a critical question. When? When will this happen? And we're not the first to ask. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, privately, tell us, when will these things be? Micah's time markers are verse 1, in the latter day, and verse 6, in that day. There are a lot of prophecies that line up with what's described in Micah 4. And whether those prophecies appear in the Old Testament or the New, the time indicators are the same. At some point in the future, some last days, God will set things right and restore his people. Prophets of the Old and New Testaments, including Jesus, speak of these events. And this means that the Bible has a lot of teaching about the same topic that's given to very different audiences. Micah's remnant. Jesus' disciples, us, just to name a few. And so as we would expect, when you give the same teaching to different audiences, there will be different descriptions that are used based on what that audience can understand. Just a moment ago, I made a tongue-in-cheek reference to Jesus. He's obviously both God and the king in the line of David. But If Micah had made a reference to Jesus of Nazareth, it would have made no sense to his Old Testament audience. And so he says, the Lord will reign over him and the former dominion shall come. That fits the audience much better. Jesus spent a lot of time explaining how he was the fulfillment of all these promises. Only this Christ-centered approach to the Old Testament can make sense That's not because the promises weren't also true in ways the original audience could understand. It's because, as one scholar puts it, there is a temporal thickness to God's promises. God's promises are thick. That phrase tries to capture the fact that their fulfillment 
spans across history in many different layers. The promises will be true and seen partially fulfilled by Israel, that original audience. But the fulfillment they see is the appetizer. It's not the entree. And those who stop there, those who think that these promises are ultimately about this physical, earthly restoration of Israel, have too thin an understanding of what God has promised his people. Jesus applies the same language of these promises to himself during and after his incarnation. And it's only this Christ-centered view of history that does justice to God's plan. Think about when he told the Samaritan woman that she would not worship the Father either on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But what did he say? He said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus said the hour is here because his coming ushered in the hour, the latter days, the in that day of the Old Testament. Consider Jesus' words in John 12, 32. Words you know well, but consider them in light of Micah 4, which you may have never done. Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See the thickness of God's promises fulfilled? When was Jesus lifted up? Once on the cross for our salvation. And also at his ascension, when he was enthroned as king forever over his kingdom, the church. And he will be lifted up again on the day of his consummation, when all people look up and we are lifted up with him in glory. What has been the result of the first two lifting ups of Christ? What was the result of him being lifted up on the cross? What was the result of him being lifted up in the ascension and made king over all things? Was it perhaps that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up from the hills and the people shall flow to it? National Israel will be restored from exile with Cyrus's edict in the 6th century. That began the fulfillment of these prophecies. But it did not come close to completing them. That restoration was partial. It proved to be temporary because it always pointed to a greater spiritual restoration of God's people. Go back and read the Gospels with Micah 4 in mind. This is what Jesus is trying to tell everyone who will listen. All of that is fulfilled in me. Another pastor wrote the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy began when Jesus came into the world. It advanced dramatically when he rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and poured out his spirit on the church. Pentecost is a big part of this. Representatives from multitudes of nations are united as one in the spirit of Christ. The Old Testament prophets did not speak directly of the church as the new Israel because it would have made no sense for them or for their audience. Reading these texts now with the benefit of Jesus' incarnation and his teaching, we can see what was the fullness of God's promises all along, a spiritual kingdom where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation live in faithfulness before God and under the peace of his rule. Efforts that try to reestablish 
a nation of Israel for God's purposes, though often well-intentioned, look less like Micah 4 than like Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. They're trying to build a kingdom that reaches up to God when God has already sent the kingdom down to us in Christ. Jesus showed that all the old symbols were pointing to him and to his kingdom. And we're hearing as we hear the book of Hebrews read every Sunday that that plea, that warning of what a folly it is to try to undo the work of Jesus and return to these now powerless symbols rather than real faith in Christ. Promises for Israel's restoration don't point to things like political statehood in 1948. They point to Jesus being of the line of David, to Jesus being the fulfillment of the Passover, to the Pentecost being the fulfillment of Micah 4. Peter said, at Pentecost, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, this was uttered through the prophet. Another pastor said, He's talking of, of Joel there. But another pastor said, if Pentecost, if the Pentecost gathering had a theme verse, it could be Micah 4, 1, and 2. Passages like this in your Bible are about the promises God has made to his people. And these promises are thick. This kingdom that the Old Testament seems to spend so much of its time anticipating and waiting for. This kingdom is not irrelevant to you. This is a kingdom of peace and security for all who see Christ lifted up and flow to him in faith. This kingdom is for all of scattered Israel who will return to Yahweh and receive him as king, repenting of give us Barabbas. It's for every man, woman, and child who longs to hear the words of God and apply them to their lives. But like Israel hearing these words from Micah, we too live in a time of tension. This is what theologians call the already and the not yet. We have already seen the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, this kingdom of peace is available to us spiritually even now. But don't you long for something more? You should. You should long for the consummation, for the time when this kingdom of peace is our daily spiritual and physical reality. That is the not yet. This means that the same risks present for Israel in Micah's time are present risks for us today. The risk of unbelief. Though the mountain of God's greatness will one day be undeniably glorious across the earth, today it's veiled by lies and sin and the curse of the fall. God is patient, and so people perceive him as indifferent and irrelevant. God is kind, and so people interpret it as his approval, even of their sin. Do not be deceived. God's judgment against sin is coming, and without faith and repentance, everyone will reap what they have sown. There's also a risk of pride and unteachability. 
What did the faithful say as they flowed like a river up to the hill of God? They said, come, let us go up to the house of God that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This might seem like a peculiar thing for you to hear me say, but when you come to church, it cannot be only to praise It must also be to be taught the things of God so that they can be applied in our lives. Micah's contemporaries loved to be seen at the temple following along with the liturgy, but they did not love to be taught or changed by the word of God. One pastor says, unless worship involves teachability, it is not worship at all. Micah's invitation for Israel, therefore, is also our invitation. Receive and apply God's teaching to our lives. The the promises have this glorious vision. Go back and reread Micah 4 this afternoon. This vision of people, everyone, walking in in the fear of God in a way that transforms every sphere of human existence. You know, the, the United Nations has Micah 4.3 hung on a plaque on its building because it believes that world peace will come through its diplomatic efforts. That is not what Micah 4 promises. What will actually bring world peace? What God promised to use to bring peace is the same thing that will ultimately bring peace to your marriage. It's the same thing that will bring peace to your relationship with your children and your parents. It's the same thing that will bring peace, indeed, to all your relationships. Mutual submission to the Lordship of Christ. The broad application of his way in our lives is what will make the new heavens and the new earth, well, heavenly. Contentment brings peace. Wisdom and zeal for God effect righteousness. One more quote. Imagine this world, you guys. Music and art are inspired not by the earth's confusion and cacophony, but by his order and beauty. Politics are motivated not by a love for power, but by a desire to serve. And economics is directed not by greed, but by justice. Sounds like heaven because it is. We cannot experience this life fully today. That's the consummation, the not yet that we long for. But you know what? We can experience it in part. We can experience this life in the church and everywhere else we determine to live for God's glory and under the peace of his rule. Israel would be brought back from exile. But they were not to accept even that as the fulfillment of God's promises. What did the generation do when the temple that's about to be destroyed was rebuilt? The generation who saw both. What does the Bible say they did? They wept. (laughs) This ain't like the old glory. (laughs) This ain't like the old temple. God doesn't want us to be satisfied with just that level of restoration. No, even Israel, getting that was to still look forward to greater fulfillment in God's promises. So in the tough times, they were to trust the promises of God. 
And in the good times, they were to be thankful, but to still long for the consummation of all things. Their, their hope was not to be extinguished by either extreme, either despair of the current realities, nor contentment with earthly blessings. We live in the same tension. And therefore, we must hope and trust in the complete fulfillment of the same promises. These promises are for us. This is why every single week we pray together, thy kingdom come. We too live in a world that threatens us from both sides. Possessions and luxuries want to make us content with the here and now and forget about the kingdom. And circumstances, struggles with employment or provision or health, Experiences of heart-wrenching loss. Circumstances tempt us to despair that consummation will ever come. Hebrews, the book that most clearly reconciles God's ancient promises with the work of Jesus Christ, is therefore also the book that most strongly encourages us to hold fast. Hold fast to our confidence. Hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Given what we see, that's not easy to do. But the promises of God are thick. And history is much more than we see. So hold fast, brothers and sisters. Long for these promises. Your God is faithful to fulfill them. Let's pray.